Today's message is part of the overall story, a One Big Story sermon series, which includes eight themes, which we'll have on the screen behind you in a moment. So we've already talked about creation, we've talked about brokenness, we've talked about promise, we've talked about law, and today we'll be talking about rebellion, and then next week we'll be talking about grace, two weeks from now, spirit, and then finally, eternity. I I really wanted you to see this screen because I didn't want to give the impression that I'm just here to talk about a negative thing, rebellion, that there's more to the story, and we invite you back. It is one big story, and we invite you back, especially the next two, three, and four weeks here, to get the complete story about the one big story. I have also been asked to speak from Joshua to Malachi. So if you were to count that, that's more than two or three books. And it's a long span of Scripture. Uh, The reality is uh, that portion of the Scripture is dominated by the prophets. So in that section, you would have the major prophets, and you would also have the minor prophets. So the major prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And they're referred to as the major prophets because of the measure of their influence as prophetic voices in that time and age. Then there are the 12 minor prophets as well, uh, significant what they have to say, and their related writings we have from Hosea through to Malachi. So with our Bibles, those would be the final books of the Old Testament. And before these 16 prophets, we also have other prophets or prophetic-like leaders, uh, some of whom, not all of them, uh, have books named after them. So we have Samuel, we have Elijah, we have Elisha, we have the judges. The judges really weren't so much prophets, but they, many of them really ministered in a prophetic-type way. We have Ezra, we have Nehemiah, and a number of other lesser-known voices as well. One of the dominant roles of the prophet was to confront. Their calling was to invite people, the people of God, back to God and the ways of God. They were to challenge people who were caught in spiritual rebellion. And because of that, they were not always liked. It has been said that a further a society drifts from God and the ways of God the more it will hate those who speak against it. And that certainly would have been true of the prophets in the Old Testament, that they were not necessarily keenly liked by all the people around them. Our text for today is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 20, where Isaiah confronts the spiritual rebellion of his day. And we would like to use this text as a representative text of that prophetic voice from Joshua through to Malachi, where the prophet is involved in challenging the status quo of the day. As we look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 20, Isaiah is addressing his nation. He's not so much addressing individuals. He's addressing his country, Judah, Israel. He's addressing these people and bringing this word to them. Now, It's an interesting exercise to go through these 20 verses to get a sense of what Isaiah would have said that many years ago to the people of Judah, the southern tribes especially. Uh, But uh, the question really that 
we need to give attention to and be considering is what is a passage like this addressed to a nation uh, say to us as a nation of Canada? So a question I want you to be considering as we walk through this, and as we walk through this, I'm going to stay really focused on the context of the day of Isaiah and their sin and their issues. But in the back of your mind, I would invite you to be considering this. Does this text have relevance to our nation? And if so, in what ways? And at the end, we'll address that by amplifying that and giving you more, seven more questions to consider as we look at that overall question. So let's step into the text, 20 verses, 1 to 20, keeping it in the context of the time of Isaiah. So the vision, verse 1, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Just a comment again about prophets were not always well-received. They could, and Isaiah is our prophet obviously here, but they could be rejected, they could be ridiculed and persecuted. Tradition holds, we can't prove it, we don't know if this is for sure or not, but tradition holds that Isaiah suffered a brutal death because of his ministry. And the suggestion is, when you're in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 37, which talks about how the prophets were persecuted, the tradition suggests that that portion where it talks about the prophet being sawn in half refers to none other than this prophet here, Isaiah. So when he was having these visions and then he was relating this, if that tradition is true and Hebrews chapter eleven thirty-seven is accurate, uh, he paid a dear price for that which he would proclaim and share with the people of God and more specifically the nation. Verse 2, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Prophets spoke on behalf of the Lord. It was not on their own initiative, but they were literally moved along by the Spirit. They were compelled by the Spirit of God so that when they would then relate to their message to their nation or to the people, they would oftentimes use this language, for the Lord has spoken. And that would be true of Isaiah 1 all the way 1 to 20. There are times where it's Isaiah that's speaking, and other times it becomes the language of the Lord, the Lord, the Spirit of God, speaking through Isaiah and speaking to the people of this nation. Now, right away in verse 2, we're introduced to the topic of rebellion. Something is clearly wrong. If you didn't know anything about the book of Isaiah, right away in verse 2, there are issues that are brought to the fore. There are no introductory niceties niceties or soft words. Right away, verse 2, he goes in and says, I have reared children, this is the Lord speaking here, and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 3, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel, Israel does not know my people do not understand. Now, I would suspect that most of us don't think of donkeys or as oxen as very alert animals. We would think that they might be slow, and I don't know if that's actually true, and afterwards you could correct me 
if uh, that is wrong. But with that in mind, just think of the intended impact three verses into what he is declaring to this people, the imagery that he's picking up here. He is saying to the nation of Israel, to the people of Judah, in verse 3 here already, the donkeys over there are smarter and brighter than the people of God. They know who they belong to, but the people of God haven't got the foggiest idea who is Lord and Master of their lives. So which is, you know, there's nothing politically correct about verse 3. And it continues. It'll get worse and cutting as he goes through this, as he addresses the people of his day and age. Verse 4, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their backs on Him. So right here in verse 4, Isaiah identifies their primary sin. They spurned the Holy One, they turned their backs on Him, It was unimportant to acknowledge him as God. Which I would like to suggest that perhaps the number one sin, there could be others that we could argue and put on the table as well, but the number one sin reflected in Scripture in Old Testament and New Testament as well is the failure of humanity to acknowledge God as God. And so Isaiah, right away, in verse 4, he brings that to their attention. So even when we go into the New Testament and we're, let's say, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and get that whole catalog of sins, at the core and at the center of the sin that is there in Romans chapter 1 is the failure, as Paul is writing this letter to the, to the Romans, to the church at Rome, is the failure of the part of humanity to acknowledge God as God and to think it's absolutely not worth my time to do as such. So that's the issue he's dealing with here. That is the core sin in these 20 verses. It's a core sin from, uh, from Joshua to Malachi, the failure to acknowledge God and then to live in obedience before him. Verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of the head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. So an outcome of not acknowledging God for them was that of injury and affliction to the nation, including the loss of sound judgment. I just uh, finished recently listening to an audio book, The Twelve Caesars from Julius Caesar through to Domitian, uh, penned by Suetonius, going back into the first century. And, um, oh, these, most of these men were... I can't say it's strong enough. Exceedingly wicked. There was no moral compass in their world in terms of sexual expression, in terms of violence, in terms of power control, in terms of the grab for money. And most of these emperors did that which was right in their eyes, which is a line from Judges chapter 21. Bringing great affliction not only on themselves, but on their people, the people of the Roman Empire. But equally here with the children of Israel. This, this comment here is, is the judgment of God that comes. But part of it is self-inflicted because of the absence of sound judgment. And that sound judgment begins in verse 4. In the absence of an understanding, there's a God in the world. And everyone doing that which is right in their own eyes. 
Verse 7, your country is desolate. Your, your city is burned with fire. So this is talking about judgment that has come to them. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste is when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion. Now, the creativity of these, these, these prophets. Listen to this line in verse 8 here. Thinking about the pride of Judah. And think about the pride of the city of Jerusalem. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. Like a, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under its siege. Probably making reference to the oppression that came from the Assyrians in 701 BC. But the picture here is Judah and Jerusalem, with all its glory, is pictured as no more than a little shack in the, in the field. And in those days, in the harvest, temporary structures would have been constructed out in the fields where they would have stored the produce and maybe where the workers could have also come and got out of the, out of the sun and ex- experienced some shade. But after the harvest was done, it was just a little shack out in the cucumber field. So Isaiah says to the people of Judah, city of Jerusalem, you're no more than a little hut in a cucumber field. <laughs> Which is... You know, it's kind of like saying to a city, well, you're nothing more than a little hick down in the prairies, you know? And you sort of, whoa, you know? And so the people of Judah and Jerusalem, oh my goodness. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom. Now he's talking to the people of Judah. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of, of, of Gomorrah, of, of Sodom. So what is Isaiah doing now? He goes back a thousand plus years and draws on a story from the book of Genesis. He could not have picked more, a more slanderous story to bring to the attention of this people. And it's not just bringing this story to their attention. He is connecting them to those two sinful communities. I mean, they would have been immensely offended by being identified as you rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's stunning what he's saying here. I mean, talk about, I mean, at the very beginning, talk about politically incorrect, but this is politically incorrect ten times over in terms of the image that he's bringing to these people about their land and who they are. Uh, Years ago when I resided in Texas, 76 to 79, and was going to school, I heard Leonard Ravenhill speak. And many uh, people at that time considered him a modern-day prophet. Now, he died later in the 1990s. But with the United States in mind, he wrote a book entitled, Sodom Had No Bible. And one of the themes or one of the ideas that comes out of that is if God does not judge the sin of this nation, he was talking about the United States, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, my guess is just in the use of that title for a book, he, was, you know, he clearly was image, uh, employing an imagery similar to what Isaiah was doing. But I'm sure that when that book came out, and even today, and even as you see it on the screen, there'd be all kinds of people that would be offended by that idea. And Isaiah picks this idea up in Ravenhill, of course, more contemporary, though he's passed away in the mid-1990s. As you are nothing more than the rulers of Sodom, you are like the people of Gomorrah. Verse 11, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls 
and the lambs and goats. Religious exercise with no meaningful acknowledgement and relationship and obedience with God means zip to God. It means nothing to him. They were useless to him. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has asked you of this, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festival, I hate with all my being. Isn't that interesting that God hates some things? And indeed, in the book of Proverbs, there's a listing of six or seven things that God hates. And one of the things that God hates is they, this, this, these, these religious practices that is that is devoid of true relational commitment to him. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So, verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my face from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. As a rule, God listens to the prayers of humanity. But clearly there is a point of rebellion. Clearly there's a point of national rebellion. This, is, this, this text, if we're going to be true to this text, is written to a nation. There is a point in which the prayer is offered by people across a nation for that nation. God will not listen if it is full of hypocrisy and the failure to fully and acknowledge God and to be obedient to him. Verses 16 and 17 Nine imperatives that follow, just like that's the cattle style. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. Part of turning back to God as a nation includes a turning away from evil and embracing justice and helping the marginalized. Then when we get to verse 18, the next verse, we come into the invitation. Come now, he says to the people of Judah, let us settle the matter. I like the New American Standard Version. Come now, let us reason together. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, snow doesn't happen that often in Jerusalem, but it does on occasion. And those rare times that it comes, it provides the people of Judah, would have provided the people of Judah, even the people of Israel today, a beautiful picture of Isaiah 1.18, that though your sins are as red as crimson, they can be white as snow, and happen that quickly as a snowfall would come to the city of Jerusalem but if you are willing, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. And actually, there's a word play there. We can't really pick it up in the English language. But more literally, it would be, if you obey, you will eat the good things. If you, if you obey, you shall eat. But if you disobey, you shall be eaten. And so that imagery of we will be devoured by the sword. They would be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then he brings it to a conclusion with verse 20 and just reminding again the people, these are not his best ideas on where the nation's at, but this is the Lord speaking through him. The mouth of the Lord has spoken to the people of Judah, and it is not a positive one. It is a picture of rebellion. 
and disobedience, but the opportunity here is for repentance if they will choose to come in verse 18. So, here's our text. And again, we've suggested that this is a representative text for Joshua all the way through Malachi, wherever we see that theme of rebellion that would come through the Old Testament, especially in these passages right here, that uh, this is a message that talks about that rebellion. So, the question, does this text have relevance for our nation? And if so, in what ways? So what I've done is I've prepared seven questions to amplify that one question. I want to go through those seven questions, and I'm not going to answer the first six. I'm just bringing them to you for your consideration and your reflection as a group of people. Maybe when you go out at lunch, you might want to consider addressing some of those questions and talking about them. Uh, Sermon discussion questions and the information center, those questions are on there. And I would understand that those questions would be online as well. So questions for our consideration. Number one. To what extent is Canada marked by verse 4? They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on Him. Where are we as a nation? You know, this thing about God assessing different nations, as we see in the Old Testament, I, I, I don't think that's just exclusively back there in the Old Testament. I, I think God continues to assess nations. And so where is Canada in relationship to verse 4, in terms of are we spurning God or are we embracing God? Two, one of the serious sins in the Old Testament is every man or every person did that which was right in their own eyes. It's a line that comes through in the scriptures a few times. So, are we living in a time when most people do that which is right in their own eyes? What do you think? Or is that overstating it? Are people genuinely, many people across our nation, endeavoring to do that which is right in the eyes of God? Question three. Is it possible that God could be angry with Canada? A number of years ago, I brought a message here entitled, Is God Miffed with Canada? And I didn't answer the question. I left you answer, and I'm allowing you to answer this question today as well. Is it possible that God could be angry with Canada? What do you think? Or is there a witness of such size and influence that God's anger is balanced out by the commitment of his dedicated followers? You would be a part of that in that collective witness across the nation of Canada. Does that balance out the the unrighteous and the righteous dynamic across Canada? Number four, have we reshaped God to be much milder than he actually is? Uh, Much tamer than he actually is? What do we do with the hard words of Isaiah as well as other Old Testament prophetic statements by some of these prophets? Number five, are there prophets on the Canadian scene, contrarians who challenge spiritual rebellion? Are there Isaiah-type voices in our nation? And if so, who are they? And would we take them seriously if we heard them? You know, there are... There was pushback that all of these prophets received. And there are those that just didn't like these guys and didn't take them seriously. Uh, Would there be contrarians, people who are different, uh, who are unconventional, who come into our midst and 
challenge the nation with unique dynamics or perspective in terms of our nation. Number six, what would a widespread acceptance of God's offer to turn from sin, which is red as crimson, to forgiveness, to white as snow, look like? What would an awakening to sin and forgiveness look like? To what extent is such an awakening dependent on the national capacity to see and acknowledge God as all holy? A key line by Isaiah through his book is he constantly says, the Holy One of Israel. And a key component in this thing about awakening or revival for a nation, historically with revivals, is people wake up, a community wakes up to the holiness of God. As they wake up to the holiness of God, they wake up to their sin. They wake up to their need for forgiveness. They wake up to the need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They come into that relationship with Jesus Christ. They are phenomenally blessed by that. They are overjoyed by that. And then even as a part of that, they go out and spontaneously share that with people beyond them. But it begins, by and large, awakenings, revivals, a win, with this idea, this core idea of the holiness of God. And then related to that, an awareness of our own sin. And then number seven, how do we factor grace, promise, and hope into a picture marked by rebellion and divine judgment? This one I want to respond a little bit. Little bit. I'll only take two or three minutes to respond on this, and this will take us to our conclusion. I would invite the worship team to come and uh, take uh, their position. But how do we factor grace, promise, and hope into a picture marked by rebellion and divine judgment. Three brief comments here. One, the potential for experiencing grace is always present. It was Isaiah who on behalf of the Lord said, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. I want to say to you that the overwhelming posture of the Bible is that of invitation. It's Isaiah 1, 18, over and over and over and over again. It's an invitation to the grace of God. And so when people like the people of Judah and Israel, they would have received that, hopefully their response would be in kind where they would say, come, let us return to the Lord. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. So the invitation is there to our nation, Canada, in different ways. But hopefully, somewhere along the way, collectively, our nation will respond and say, Come, let us return to the Lord. Let us acknowledge him. Second one, most of the prophetic books, not all, end with a message of promise and hope. And the grace of God is behind that. Now, Nahum is an exception. Also, Jeremiah ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. But aside from those maybe two or three books, the final word, when you look at the final chapter of the major prophets, you look at the final chapters of the minor prophets, they end with this emphasis upon grace, promise, and hope. And the prophets are not just stuck on a message of rebellion and judgment. This message of promise and hope is, generally speaking, the final word, the final word. And I think when we read these prophets and we read Isaiah, it's good to remember that the final word is one of promise and hope and grace is behind that. And then a third thought, I want to connect this back to the Easter story and the resurrection story. We live with the power and reality of resurrection hope. 
Our prayer is that we and many within our nation would encounter the resurrected and living Jesus Christ, who in turn can turn that which is sinful and rebellious to that which is holy and godly. Our prayer, as brief as it is, may it be so, may it be so, may it be so. Amen.